Good morning, everyone. Uh, good morning, SBC. It's uh, good to be with you here this morning. Uh, a massive warm welcome to you if you're joining us li- online for the very first time. And a big well done to you if you have woken up this morning and made time to tune in. I know the challenges of online services often mean that we as a people get distracted by getting kids ready, things to do during the day, etc., etc. So to finding the time, carving the time out to be able to sit down and listen to an online service, just a well done. Uh, as we were praying a bit earlier, I truly believe that you'll be guarding your own faith and uh, you'll be making sure that you mature over the season and not get uh, weak and fall away. So we want to devote ourselves to the preaching of God's word and uh, just a big warm, a big well done to you. We find ourselves in uh, the book of Peter again, 2 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 18 is the text that we're going to be unpacking this morning. Uh, We, before Christmas, started off with a series uh, called Priceless, and uh, the series uh, gets its name from the idea that we have this faith that is incredibly important, it's incredibly valuable, it is a priceless faith. Um, and so this morning, I just before we dive into our text in, in uh, one, uh, 2 Peter 1 verses 16 and 18, I just want to give us a bit of a recap. And not too long of a recap, but as Peter says in chapter 1, we want to stir up a way of reminder. And it would just be so important for us to grasp all that's been said because it has some implication for us today. And also, man, there are some glorious truths that are so good for us just to keep at the forefront of our mind. So as I said, this series is called Priceless, and it's called Priceless because we have a faith that is priceless. In, 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 in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter says that we have a faith that is on equal standing to that of the apostles. Isn't that quite incredible? Uh, that you and me, if we are believers in Christ, don't have a faith that is subpar, it isn't below average, it is of the same standard and value uh, as that of the apostles. It's really, really glorious. And uh, Peter says, Jesus has not only come to just save us from our sins, but in his death and resurrection, he has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And what that means is that if we have a faith in Jesus, God will give us all things that we need in order to live out the plan and the purpose that he has called us to. All spiritual things and all physical things he will give to us to fulfill his particular plan for you and me. And so that just stirs up faith that we can survive in this world and in this life doing much for God's kingdom through this faith that we have. And if we are to gain access through this faith, it is so important for us to be able to pursue after Jesus. And that's really the heart of Peter in this epistle. He really wants us to love Jesus and to love him well and and to pursue after him. And so he's trying to stir up a fire in us for the love of Christ. And uh, he says that there have been given to us these wonderful promises that we can hold on to in order to help us to be able to love Jesus more and enjoy him. And uh, he says, well, because we've been given this faith, there are some things that we need to do. And uh, we need to apply certain and add and supplement certain qualities to our faith. We need to add in virtue. Then we need to do knowledge and then self-control and then steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love. 
And uh, he warns us that if we don't do this, we'll become a people who are ineffective. We'll become a people who are fruitless, that we'll be nearsighted, short-sighted, blind, forgotten that our sins have been uh, forgiven. But if we do do this, we'll be fruitful. We'll be effective. We'll be a people who are assured of our salvation. And man, there'll be a reward waiting for us in heaven. And so we are to remind ourselves daily of these truths. And that's kind of partly why we have uh, did a bit of a recap this morning of having these truths in our mind. Now we move on to a new section. There's a bit of a, it's a transitional passage, at least the way I see it. And there are, uh, are two things that people, Peter is trying to do in verses 18 to 21. We're only going to be looking at part of that this morning. But Peter's trying to do two things. Primarily, he's trying to build for himself a foundation of authority so that he might be combative against the false teachers that he is trying to address that have clearly crept into the church that uh, that Peter is writing to. And uh, secondary, but I still think important, is he's trying to place the final nail in the coffin on why you should add these qualities to your faith and why you should take this faith seriously. So have that in mind as we read our text this morning, verses 16 to 18, and, uh, and then we uh, will see what Peter has to say for us. Verse 16 says the following. For we did not follow carefully devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven and for we were with him on that holy mountain. And so Peter here is emphasizing the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we know it's the second coming that he's trying to place emphasis on because in verse 16, he says, uh, for we have made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've just recently had Christmas and we know that Christmas, uh, as we celebrated, Jesus came quietly. He came vulnerably. He came as a little baby born in a nobody town called Bethlehem. But here he says, no, we made known to you the power of his coming. And Jesus, when he comes again, is going to come in power and in glory. So here Peter is trying to lay down an incredible foundation saying, man, I, this is important for you. You need to know about the second coming. It is going to happen and we have made it known to you. And as I've already said, there have been false teachers that have crept in to this body of believers and are trying to teach them an incorrect um, theology saying, don't worry about the second coming. The, the, these false teachers are saying that the apostles have made it up. It's a myth. It's something that is not true and, and therefore you don't have to listen to them. And uh, later we'll see in Peter chapter 2 verse, uh, Peter 2, to Peter chapter 3, uh, that he will say that these false teachers are saying, where is he? He hasn't arrived yet. So don't worry about it. It's just, it's made up. And so Peter's point in, in this text, and, and, and really he goes from here on, he's trying to be combative against these false teachers, and he's going to lay down why should we believe his testimony of the second coming of Christ over the false teachers who are saying it's made up and it's a myth. 
And he does this in two ways in verses 16 to 21. And we're only going to look at one this morning. But the two ways are that he first appeals to his own eyewitness accounts. That's the first one. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And then secondly, he appeals to uh, the prophetic word of God as seen in other places of the Old Testament, which we'll be looking at uh, later on next week. And so here we, we, Peter is going to appeal to his eyewitness account. And we see that in verse 16, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But when uh, what is Peter trying to appeal to here? He is saying that I have seen the glory that is to come when Jesus comes again in his second coming. I have already seen it. When did he see it? Well, we see it in what the, the, the account that Peter is referring to in verses 17 to 18. So let's read it one more time. It says here, For when he received glory, honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter here is referring to a, an event known as the transfiguration. It was this glorious event where Peter, James, and John headed up a mountain with Jesus. We don't know which mountain it is. He just refers to it as the holy mountain. And as he heads up to this mountain there, Jesus is transfigured. He is transformed into incredible glory. And he meets with Elijah, and he, and he meets with Moses. And it's at this point that he sees the glorious nature of of Christ in its fullness. It's just a glimmer, it's just a moment, but he gets to see the transfigured Jesus of what he would look like when he comes. And so Peter appeals to this event to say, I can tell you that the second coming is on its way. It will happen because I have already seen it. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at four things that the transfiguration shows us about the nature of the second coming. And the first one is that the transfiguration shows us that Jesus will come in glory. We see this in verse 16, sorry, verse 17. It says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father. So as Jesus was up on this holy mountain, he received the honor and glory of what was going to wait for him. So Peter had just seen a glimpse, just a moment of it. The apostle saw it for a brief moment up there, but he's seen, I have seen it with my eyes. And uh, in the, the Gospels, it breaks it down and gives a description of what this glory looked like. And Luke 9 verse 29 says uh, this about his appearance, that his appearance of his face was altered and his clothing was dazzling white. That's what the glory looked like. Matthew 17 verse 2 says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Mark 9 verses 3 and 4 puts it like this. It says, And he was transfigured before him, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white. And I love this description. As no one could bleach, could bleach them. He was clearly a bachelor and couldn't bleach his own clothing well. Um, this intense glory. Peter says, I have seen this glory. It's, it's dazzling. It was, trans, it was uh, transformative. It changed the way he appeared. It was glorious in the way it looked. 
This, re- this reminds me of the event that we see in the Old Testament where, where we see uh, Moses come down from, uh, from being in the presence of God and his face shone so much so that he had covered with a veil. And that was just Moses being in the presence of God. This glory is even greater in that Jesus wasn't just in the presence of God. He is the very presence of God. He is the glory that is to come. This is an incredible glory. And so Peter's argument is saying, I have not made this up. This glory of Jesus returning in might and in power is something that I have seen. It's not a myth. It's not, it's not a, a, a conjured up a theory, but rather this is something that I have seen with my own eyes. And you will see it when Christ comes again and it's going to come permanently, not in a short period. It's, it's wonderful. The second thing that the transfiguration shows us about the second coming of Jesus is that Jesus is going to come as king. We see this in uh, Peter. It's, it, he says this, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. This word and phrase talking and referring to God the Father when he says majestic glory is a terminology that describes kingship. And, and when the king says, this is my beloved son, that is another phrase that is used to talk about a right-hand man. Uh, so it's the king saying, this is the heir to my throne. This is my right-hand man. Other places in scripture, like in Hebrews, talk about how Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's a, it's a description or an imagery that is used of authority and of power and of rule. And essentially what he, God is saying here and what Peter is trying to refer to is that when Jesus comes, he doesn't come as some nobody that's born in Bethlehem, but rather he comes as the authoritative king who rules the world, who is over the universe, who is sovereign over all things. Jesus is going to return and how he returns is he's going to come as a victorious king. When Jesus arrived on earth for the very first time, he was subjected to kings and governments. But this time, he's going to arrive as the king of kings and the lord of lords over all governments and every knee will bow before him. Jesus, when he arrived the first time, was able to be arrested by soldiers. But Jesus is going to come as the victorious warrior king with a sword in his mouth who's going to put the enemy under his feet. Jesus, when he came the first time, was judged and, and sentenced to death. Jesus, when he comes again, is going to come as the judge who judges the living and the dead. He's coming as king. He's coming in power. And Peter says, I have heard it. I have heard God the Father say, this is his son. This is the one who's coming in authority. This is not something I've conjured up. And when he comes again, everyone will see that this is the king of kings. The next thing that we see that the transfiguration shows us is Jesus comes as our savior. He's going to come as our savior. The first part that we just read in the voice of of the father, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, with whom I am well pleased. That with whom that I am well pleased there is a phrase that is used all the way back in Isaiah 42 verse 1. 
uh, which is the start of a section from 40, Isaiah 42 all the way to Isaiah 53, known as the start of a section that describes the, the suffering servant, the one who was going to come and reunite Israel to God and the Gentiles back to God as well, the Gentile nations. And in Isaiah 42 verse 1, it says these words, which essentially God is uh, quoting himself or referring back to what he had said through Isaiah uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says this in Isaiah 42 verse 1. He says, Behold my servant uh, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom I delight, in whom I am well pleased. And this is such an important part of this as well, is, 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 is here Peter is saying, well, he is the one who's come to save us. God did say that Jesus who's come was going to suffer on our behalf. He is the suffering servant that Isaiah spoke to. So just because this Jesus went and he was beaten beyond recognition and died on the cross, and yes, he was risen again later, but just because he did that does not mean he will not come in glory. Does not mean he will not come, because he is, because he's also the son who's going to come in glory. But this also gives us a great amount of hope for us as believers to know that when Jesus comes again in glory, he's not just coming in in power and might and his king to to rule this world with a sword in his mouth, but he's coming as savior. And if we believe in him and have faith in him, he's going to come and restore us to himself. He's going to bring you and me to him. He's going to set us free, finally set us free from the wage against the flesh and this world and in Satan. He's going to set us free from death and, and, and sin completely. He's going to fulfill completely his saving at that moment in our lives. And we will be with him. So we, there is no fear here. There is, a, there is a peace. There's a longing for this coming because he comes as our savior. And lastly, what we see that the transfiguration shows us about the second nature of Christ is that it's going to be literal, physical, and an historical experience. The transfiguration wasn't a dream. It wasn't made up. It was something that they physically experienced. We see this. He says, we were eyewitnesses on this camp. We heard the voice. We were with him on the mountain. There is, he was, they were there literally, they saw with their own eyes, they heard with their own ears. It wasn't something that they'd conjured up in a dream or made up, they had experienced it. And this tells us that the second coming, this glory that is Jesus is coming in, the, he's going to come physically, he's going to be there literally, we're going to literally see him. It's not something that's going to happen silently, it's not going to happen uh, quietly. The second coming of Christ is going to be in power and in glory, and the world will see that he is the king of kings, and the world will see he was the suffering servant who died for the sins of the world. And so they're going to see it physically. It's going to be an historical future event that will happen. You see, the Jehovah's Witnesses argue that in 1914 that Jesus came quietly. And this was just a thing that they said because they had predicted he would come in 1914. And when he didn't, they said, oh, he did, but he came silently. No, this text doesn't allow us to think so. This text says, no, when he comes, the second coming, it's going to be in glory and it's going to be in might. It's going to be in power. That's how he's coming. And it's going to be physical. We're going to see it. This, uh, this is the very nature of the second coming. And, and we know that as well in Acts 1 verse 11. 
Um, it says, as the disciples watch Jesus ascend into heaven, an angel appears and says, why are you looking up? Man, the way he has departed is the same way he's going to arrive. He's going to come on clouds. We see this in, in Matthew uh, 24, verse 30. It says, they will see the Son of Man coming on the, uh, on the clouds of the sky with, great, uh, with power and great glory. It is a physical thing that is going to happen They're going to see him. And so it's something that we long for. But why is this all important? Why is Peter uh, making this argument and beating this drum? Why is is it important that we should take seriously uh, the second coming of Christ? And I think there's a number of reasons for this. I think there, uh, and we could discuss many, but I think the, the one thing is that eschatology, which is the study of end times or end things, last things, um, eschatology, re- our eschatology really shapes the way we live. It shapes our life. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to look at how it shapes our life negatively and then how it shapes our life positively. So when we have an un- a poor understanding on unbiblical eschatology, it shapes our lives negatively. And the first way it does that is that it, it leads to a life of sin. And I think we see that quite particularly in the text that we find here. It's the reason why Peter is having to address this with the church that he is writing to. They have been told that there is no second coming. It's a myth. And the result has been not a continual pursuit of holiness and righteousness, but the result has been a life of carelessness and a pursuit of sin. Because what has Peter described someone who does not take righteousness and holiness seriously is someone who is nearsighted. It's someone who is only enamored with what they can see immediately around them. They can't see far into the distance. They're not looking at future events, but they're only looking at the here and now. And when we don't think of the second coming, what happens is we sit and we get too enamored with the world that is around us. We come, we, what becomes valuable to us are our possessions, our jobs, our careers, our friendships. All these things become so valuable, we become people who like to store up things here on earth rather than uh, in heaven. And so it leads to a life of passion and sin because it's more about my pleasures now than the pleasures that are are awaiting for me in the future. And I think this is particularly displayed for us in the life of the false teachers. The false teachers will be, and I won't dive into them this morning, but they are described as people who live a life of sin. And they have intentionally gone and said, this is something that is made up in order to justify their lives of sin and sensation and pursuing after things that God does not necessarily want for our lives. And so uh, the, the, the problem with having a poor eschatology or an unbiblical eschatology is it leads to life of sin. And I think for many of us that are habitually living in sin are not feeling any sort of guilt around the sin that we have, you'll probably find that you have taken out from the forefront of your mind or subconsciously put it aside the second coming of Jesus. The the inevitableness of Christ returning genuinely puts in us a a desire to start to live for him. The the second... uh, Thanks, buddy. There we go. Appreciate it. Thank you. The second uh, thing that uh, happens here 
is that it leads to fear. It leads to fear. And I think it leads to fear in two ways. I think if you do not have a formed eschatology, um, if you do not have an understanding of the end times, or you've just neglected it, or you don't believe in it at all, you're skeptic of it. It leads to fear. And that's, again, a, a part of the fact that we are so become so enamored with the here and now. It's, we have put our trust and our hope and our value into our own possessions, our own kingdoms, what we want and our own dreams and desires. And our, that is all dependent on external factors that are out of our control. But ex- those external factors are fallible. Those external factors are corrupt. Those external factors are uh, unable to always achieve what we want. And so we are dependent on how the stock markets go. We're dependent on whether a global pandemic arrives. We're dependent on how our decisions our government make. And, uh, and as a result, uh, we are stirred with fear because the things that we hold so dear are in their hands and not in the hands of an eternal, infallible God that is coming. And so we become a people that are fearful because we're all about the here and now. But also, I think it, it also, um, we, we become fearful if we have an unbiblical eschatology. And I see this quite a bit online at the moment, is that there are people that have formed an eschatology, but yet it has led to fear. They are scared of the, the end things to come. But my friends, I want to say that eschatology, the, the end times, the coming of Christ in Scripture is never meant to stir up fear in our hearts. The primary focus of the end times is not the tribulations that are to come our way and to scare us. It's not about the persecutions that will happen. It's not about the power of Satan and the beast and etc., etc. The power, the, the, the purpose of giving us the second coming is to point the victorious nature of our King of Kings is to tell us that we have a God and King who is over all, who will defeat all and put his enemies under his feet. We on eschatology should never lead to a place of paralyzing fear in us, but rather a place of hope because we have a King that is over all things and he will come and put his enemies under his feet. And, and we see this in 2 Timothy 1 verse uh, 7. It says, we are not given a spirit of uh, fear, but of a power and love and self-control or a sound mind. And, and I, I want to encourage you that if your eschatology leads to paralyzing fear, leads to fear of, of, of future things, then, then either your eschatology is wrong or your application of it is wrong. And there needs to be, it needs to lead to hope and, and a desiring and a longing of the return of Christ, not of a paralyzing fear. But I, but I must say that, it's, that that is only true for the believer. That eschatology does not lead to fear for the believer, but for the unbeliever it should. The the witness of the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return in the second coming needs to stir up fear in in those who are not right with God. Because as we've said, and as we've seen so far this morning from the transfiguration, what Peter is saying, that when he returns, he's returning as what? He's returning as king in glory, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And you are either for him 
or you are against him. And he will defeat his enemies and put them under his feet. And as Matthew 25 says, he will give eternal life to those who are with him and he will punish eternally those who are against him. And so it is important that we make sure that we are being made right with Jesus. But as I have heard someone dear to me say this week and made a comment, they said, well, I'm sure that, um, that when I stand, that people who die will have a second chance when they stand before God one day. And my friend, that is simply not what Scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches us that uh, we are saved through faith alone. And what is faith? Hebrews uh, 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith can only take place when things aren't seen. And when Jesus returns or you die and go be with him beforehand, is that you will see him and their faith will not be possible and therefore salvation will not be possible. And the, the, the message of the second coming to you, if you have tuned in online and are a family member because you, you've, a family member has asked you to be on or you just happen to be home visiting mom and dad from varsity, whatever the case might be, is that the, the, the message to the unbeliever and potentially to the non-Christian is, wake up, get ready, the king is coming, your time is potentially short. And you need to make right with him now. But the hope and that we have is that Jesus has come as the suffering servant. He has come to die for the sins of the world. He has died for your sins. And if this morning, if you see clearly that this Jesus Christ is God and is King, it is before you, you can take hold of that faith yourself. You can grasp it and have it and make it yours. And, and Scripture says that all we need to do is repent from our sins, turn to Him, and ask for forgiveness, and He will forgive us. And we will be transferred from being enemies to being sons and daughters of the living God. And the second coming of Christ will no longer be something you need to fear, but something you need to long for and hope for and your wants. So that is, that is uh, what a, a negative eschatology does to us. A a good biblical understanding of eschatology, how does that shape our lives? Well, firstly, it means that we see our lives, we see ourselves as sojourners in this life, as sojourners in this life. And uh, I think one of the biggest differences between us, the modern church, and just not just necessarily SBC, but just the church as a whole, and the New Testament church, is that the New Testament church saw themselves as sojourners. What do we mean by that? They saw themselves on a, on a journey. This world was not their home, but their home, which was to come, had not arrived yet. And so they were in between spaces. And how does that shape our lives? It means that we don't become so enamored with something that's not our home, but rather we start to focus our attention on our home. It's like, I was thinking of an example today, it's like renting a house. When you're a tenant, you don't mind doing the odd ends and things there, but you're definitely not going to invest hundreds of thousands of rand into a property that's not yours. Rather, what you would do is you would save that money up till the day you can buy to invest in a house that is your own, right? And in a very similar way, what happens when we see, have the second coming at the forefront of our mind is that we start to become a people who are not so invested in trying to build up treasures here on earth, but we heed Jesus' warning and build up treasures for ourselves in heaven. 
We become people that focus on future things. We become a people that live a wartime mentality. It's not uh, we, we do as little and, uh, and live on as little as we possibly can so that we might uh, live for the kingdom and the future coming of the kingdom. It shapes the our way we use our finances. It shapes the way we use, see our careers, the way we see our parenting, the way we see our friends. It shapes everything. We become sojourners and, and people who are living for the next world, not, not just this world. Uh, and, and as a result, there are a couple of things that happen. We start to strive for holiness. When we have a good biblical understanding of eschatology, we start to strive for holiness. And, and the, the reason for that is because when we start to think of the second coming, that Jesus is going to come in glory and as king and as judge, and that we are going to stand before him. Sorry, this mic. We are going to stand before him. And, and we're going to see this glorious nature, and he's going to be there in holiness. What do we want to do? We want our very best before him, right? We don't want to have neglected this life that he has granted to us, or he's granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness, to stand before him and say, I know you saved me from sin, but I enjoyed it and dwelt in it and didn't enjoy the things that you have made away from me. That's not what we want. But what we want is we want to be able to stand before him with saying, I have done my best. I have made every effort to add these qualities to my faith. I'm as, as best as I possibly can be. I'm as holy as I can and as I've done. And, and, and there's also an element here of going, I want to stand before him not as an acquaintance, a friend that I, I, I haven't seen in decades, but someone who I know intimately. I want this, this, this meeting up again for the very first time being something that I've enjoyed. And I've, I, it's, this is the filling of something that I've been enjoying and loving. This is a person whom I love, not, not someone that I just know a little bit about. And, and so we strive for holiness, we strive for relationship with God, we, we go after him as much as we possibly can, because we know we're going to be standing before him one day. It also leads to a life that becomes fruitful. As we live a life of sojourners, what happens is we become people who focus on the right stuff. Again, it's not about pushing our own careers and our own advancements, but rather it's about extending the kingdom of God. And so we as Christians are well aware of the fact that I'm going to be standing before this God, given account of the tasks that he has given me. And he has at least given me through the power of the Holy Spirit, one spiritual gift to glorify him and to build up his church, at least one, maybe multiple but to use for his glory and uh, to build up this church, prepare his bride for when he returns. I, I've at least been given the task. We see in Matthew 28, 19 to 21, that we have been asked, sorry, 19 to 20, that we have been asked to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that I've commanded you. We have been asked to do that. 
And we also know that before the foundations of the world, as we see in Ephesians 2 verses 10, that God has made a plan for us, a plan before the foundations of the world, that just particularly for you, for you to live out in your circumstance, with your personality, with your interests, that he has given to you a plan to live for his glory. And so when I stand before him one day at the coming of Jesus, I want to make sure that I have done my very best in those things that I stand there having something to present. So as the king has sent out a servant to do a task, that I have completed to the best of my ability the task. Jesus gives that, that parable of the talents, that he has given me some talents, whether it be one, a two, or five, whatever the amount might be, he has given me some talents, and I just want to be as faithful as I can with what he has, so that when I stand before him one day, I can hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I want you to notice those are for the faithful servants. And I think sometimes we just assume we're all going to hear that, and I, I don't think so. I think many of us will, will pass and be saved through fire. Our, good, our, our works will be burnt up, but it's for those who have been faithful to the task that will hear those glorious words of Christ. And so we strive. The second coming puts an urgency in us not to wait around, not to wait till a later point in life, not to wait until the kids are out the house, not to wait until they've gone off to school, not, not to wait until I've finished varsity or I've retired. No, or even now that I've retired, I can enjoy myself. No, uh, it puts an urgency. Christ might come soon. Be watchful, says Jesus. And so we, are, we want to be those virgins, those five virgins that have oil in the lamp waiting awake for the groom to arrive, not those five that have fallen asleep. And so it gives us an urgency and it makes us fruitful. And lastly, what we see is, is that it gives, us, it gives us peace. It gives us peace. And... Uh, in the midst of a broken world that is falling apart and everything, and, and at least it seems the trajectory of the world's going down at the moment, we have an incredible peace that our hope is not in governments, our hope is not in others, but our hope is in this glorious king that is to return. And while he will return, he's in control now, but he will also usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Corruption will be gone. Government will be under him. He will rule in power and he will rule perfectly. And this is the hope that has to come. And so regardless of politicians, regardless of uh, uh, pandemics, regardless of illness and death that might be happening, it does not steal our peace because our hope is not in them. Our hope is in this glorious king that is to return. And so like Paul, we can say in Romans 8 verse 18, for I consider this suffering of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And like John, we're able to come alongside him in Revelations 22 verse 20 with a longing in our hearts to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. I'm going to hand over to Matt, who's going to lead our response time. Why don't you close your eyes this morning, wherever you are. What Joe has shared from God's word this morning is massive. It's, if we allow it to sink into our hearts, man, this is life-changing stuff. And so, what has the Lord been saying to you this morning? There were four very real things that he began to unpack 
as the consequences of either neglecting or living for the second coming of Jesus? What is the one thing you feel God saying to you? I just felt a few questions as Joe was preaching to ask us to help us process that. The first thing is, is there anything in your life that is not pleasing to Jesus right now? That if he had to come tonight, you would go, that shouldn't be there. The second is, what are you fearing right now? What's keeping you up at night and preoccupying you during the day? Would you put that light in the light of Christ? What's gripping your heart in fear? And how does it look in the light of Jesus' coming? And lastly, just is there anything right now in your life that you're loving more than Jesus? Father, this morning, this sermon is for our good, for your glory. And we're so grateful you're for us in Christ. And these words are to help shape our lives and the affections of our hearts, Lord, for you. What we see right now is not what will be then. Oh, Lord, would you stir us up by way of reminder this morning. And if there's anybody listening this morning who's not ready to meet Jesus, he could come sooner than we think. Lord, would you just come and minister the hope of the gospel into their hearts that, Lord, you offer a readiness in Christ if you will come by faith in Jesus and bow your knee to him and say, I'm not going to wait till that day. I'm going to do it now. I'm going to bow my knee to Jesus now. Would you do that right now? Before the Lord, would you say, Jesus, you're my Savior and King. I want to live for you. Lord, these are the things that matter. So come, Lord, might these words that have been preached, Lord, be massaged into our hearts as we worship now and declare these things. Lord, I pray that they would just expand our faith, illuminate our eyes, help us see things as they really are, as you see them, that we might live with that clarity and presence of mind and fullness of heart. That help us live fully for Jesus. We pray this in your precious name. We're going to worship and we're going to sing and declare in song what Joe has been preaching. It's called This I Believe. And so uh, let's allow us to be gripped by these things. the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. Lord, this morning, our hearts to be gripped by, we want to live by. Judge and our defender suffered and crucified. Forgiveness is in you. Descended into darkness, you rose in glorious light. Forever seated high. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus. this morning. Let's sing it to him. I believe. Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 
melt on before you. You silence the boast of sin and grace. The heavens are roaring, the praise of your glory. For you are raised to life again. You have no rival, you have no equal. What a beautiful name it is, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is, nothing compares to this, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus.
bless you, Lord. Forever you are blessed. We thank you for this time, Lord. Let your spirit stay in our hearts, Lord, alive and making love this word. God, stir us up by way of reminder throughout this week. Praying, God, we'd love you more, serve you more, live for you more in Jesus' name. Be ready for your coming. Amen. Stay safe, stay close to Christ, and we'll see you next week.